Hey everyone, it's Brandon Lee here, host of the podcast Escaping Rock Bottom. I'm here in Santa Monica, California, beautiful Southern California. I've got a great guest for you today. Her name is Kathy. She's got 20 years in recovery. Uh, Kathy, first off, thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's all about um, you know spreading our experience, strength, and hope uh, with people out there who may never walk into a 12-step recovery room. So I'm grateful for you to kind of sit down and share your story with me. Tell me a little bit about where you were born, where you were raised, and what was your drug or booze of choice? (laughs) So, let's see. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I was raised in Long Island, and my drug of choice was booze. I was just a wino. I missed sort of the Soma and pill, apple martini phase um <laughs> craze i just did alcohol i mean i was a wino what at what age did you first like try wine or try booze so i was a typical asian kid violin piano sat camps and i was the my, overachiever <laughs> <laughs> and extreme to the or you know to the extreme and i didn't start drinking until i was in college so i went to a jesuit Irish school in Boston, and that's when I discovered drinking, and I loved it. But it was just beer. I didn't know about wine back then. Although they did, they were doing an alcohol run, and I asked for Manischewitz, and they all were that's like a Jewish wine for like Passover. (laughs) They were like, "What are you talking about?" And then when I lived in the city, that's when I really uh, imbibed in wine. And you, you mean New York City? New York City, yes. Yeah, I mean, I lived in New York City too, from about ninety-eight to two thousand eight, around that time period. And New York City is just, if you're an addict. It is just going to suck you in, you know, just because of all the bars and the atmosphere of New York City. How old were you about? You were in college when you first started drinking? Yes, I was like 18. How did that impact your college? Or were you able to kind of live that double life and be a good drinker and still be able to achieve and do well in school? So it's interesting. My whole life, like kindergarten to 12th grade, was geared to getting like A++. And then once I got to college, I got like C's. Like I just didn't care anymore. Did your family know about the grades slipping or did you hide that from them? I must have hid hid it from them. Because it's, you know, I, I grew up with a half Asian family and academics academics is like the one thing that the Asian culture and Asian community really like the kids feel the pressure of it, right? Parents want their kids to get straight A's. And as you said, you were doing a lot of music along with it. So that's why I asked. I'm curious. I'm like, did your parents know about you starting to get (laughs) C's in college? (laughs) Maybe by that point they were old and didn't care, but it was, it was, I think about it now was so interesting because I just was like for, from kindergarten to 12th grade, very, very overachieving, um, very industrious and ambitious. And then once I got to college, I just sort of gave up. And my goal was to learn how to drink like the other Irish Catholic kids. How long did it take you to feel like you fit in? <laughs> um, pretty quick. I My first drink was at 18, like I said, in college. I uh, went to a party. I drank beer. I threw up. I hit on like my friend's boyfriend. And I wanted to do it all over again. And then I learned how to boot and rally. So that's like drinking a lot and throwing up and then doing it over again. And and how long did that? How long did that really last you? Did you ever dabble into drugs or did you just stick with the booze? I tried the easier, softer green drug a handful of times. It yeah. made me feel too relaxed. 
<laughs> I mean, a lot of people love it, but I didn't like it. And I never, I was too scared to try anything else. It's so funny you say that because my memory of, of using like marijuana goes back to high school. And the moment I took a hit of weed, I would find the nearest couch and would fall asleep to the point where my friends are like, you can never smoke weed around <laughs> us because you're boring, you know? And so like, I would just immediately go to sleep, which led me to using hardcore other drugs like cocaine and meth right. and all that craziness. So what did you do professionally? So I graduated um, college. Mm -hmm. I moved back to Long Island and everybody, it was like the next right thing to move to the city. I didn't really want to necessarily, but everybody, everybody was doing it. So I moved to the city and I worked in advertising and uh, public relations. I just kind of dabbled. I was like a kindergarten assistant and then I was a per permanent temp. So at an architectural firm. And then uh, by the end of my drinking, I, so, well, so, so at the end, so I was 26 was when I left the city. But at that time, I was working at this architectural firm in Hell's Kitchen at this, I was, a, as a temp, I was like wearing a hard hat and I was bottoming, bottoming out on alcohol. And I felt like the job was sort of metaphor of what was going on in my life. Like literally, like we were in this like abandoned building. I was worked for Ron you know, this architect in this like abandoned building that they were renovating. And then I got sober a year later, but I'd really consider that sort of my alcohol bottom. And how did it start to impact you? Did your coworkers start to know what were some of the signs? Did, did the people closest to you? The reason why I asked that is because during my drugging and drinking, and even when I was hospitalized, when I had overdosed, I still didn't even call my family. Cause like if I called my family and they saw me in that state, I tell people the gig would have been up. Right. Like I, my true colors would have been exposed. So did you hide it from your family? So that's a really good point. So what happened was I moved to the city from 24 to 26. I was drinking wine and smoking cigarettes and living in the Upper East Side. It's a very enabling city. Nobody drives. So, right. um, but I had terrible blackouts, very scary blackouts and my bottom was was working at that job and if what happened was so what happened was I fell into this horrible depression I started getting anxiety attacks and panic attacks and um, I started calling out sick at work and then I was terribly terribly depressed I thought I was going crazy but I didn't know I had alcoholism mm. and what happened was I literally rolled out of bed back then there were no cell phones I rolled out of bed I crawled to my the landline I called my college roommate who's not in the program but she knew the language she said you need to get honest which is the principle of step one right so I called my parents and I told them what was going on they were only an hour away in Long Island but I told them what was going on. They're like, come home. And so with the clothes on my back, I went on the choo-choo train. They picked me up at Syosset. They took me right to my therapist's office. And that I never went back to the city to live there again. Wow. Okay. Have you been sober since that time? No. So I got sober a year later. Okay. But what when was I, that year like then when you call your parents, you tell them, listen, I'm struggling Parents say, come back home. Yes. You go to therapy. What was that year like then? So it's interesting. They call that time like when I was sick. Mm. And, um, and I, you know, I just remember I kept, when I landed in the therapist's office, like, like I said, I didn't know I had alcoholism. So she, I knew her from, I went to see her when I was 23. 
So when she was asking me what was going on, I was like, I'm a wash up. I'm a loser. I, all my friends are in graduate school or getting married. I can't keep a guy. I drink a lot. I can't sleep. Someone's chasing me with butcher knife. I'm having panic attacks. I am experiencing waves of grief. And in the middle of all of that, she heard I drink a lot. So she said, why don't you check out Alcoholics Anonymous? You'll get a lot of support. And I was like, are you insane? Are you listening to me? I'm having panic attacks. I'm, <laughs> you know, like going crazy. But she planted the seed. And so I lived at my parents' house. And I remember saying to her, like, I think I need to go to the hospital. And she said, because I wanted to, I had suicidal ideation, which is a fancy way of saying I wanted to kill myself. And I had a plan. It was a fantastical plan, but it was a plan. I wanted to press the delete button on a wall. And, and she said, you don't need to go to the hospital because your parents are setting up your house like a hospital. My parents were retired doctors. And um, I just remember my mom gave me, you know, some antidepress- antidepressant and some uh, anti-anxiety medicine. And my dad would like take the big orange scissors and cut up my medicine for me. And my mom would, you know, pray over me at night. But, you know, they really they didn't know I had alcoholism, but they knew that I was sick. And so I'm really grateful because they ended up paying my rent. Like I didn't want to screw over my roommate. And so they really did save me. They helped me during that time. And um, and I just went to therapy twice a week and I believe in outside help. Mm, I took too. a writing class that my therapist told me to take. And then I started getting better in a few months. And um, I answered a teeny tiny New York Times ad to work at a boarding school. And my dad was in one car. My mom and I were in my car. I had never driven like further than the Hamptons before. I was like 26. (laughs) And we went to Massachusetts. At the the time, I was like so proud of myself because they hired me on the spot. But they were desperate for staff. So they just like handed me, threw me med keys and was like, good luck. And it was a boarding school for... Uh, mini addicts, basically, like teens who are emotionally, behaviorally disturbed. And the, the, the ad read for kids in recovery, but I didn't realize, like I just thought like recovery, generally speaking, but it was literally a, uh, a, a boarding school for kids. Like you have to graduate. In order to graduate, you have to do the fourth step. Fourth step. And the director, all the staff, the kids, everybody was a 12-step program. So it was so interesting. I mean, it was so easy for me to get sober. because It was almost like your higher power working for you in a way, setting you up for that first job, not only to save yourself, but to be around it and to really do steps 10, 11, 12 and help other people. Yes, exactly. (laughs) When I didn't even realize. And I was drinking. So that's why my real bottom, I feel, in alcohol was 26. I also call it like a mental health bottom. But then from 26 to 27, I was at this boarding school where it was very hip and sexy and cool and required by most, you know, to be, you're not required, but it was just very normalized to be in a 12-step program. But it was, the rule was you couldn't, um, you could only drink like one or two glasses a month. You, you couldn't get drunk. And it was like based on like this honor code system, you know, like nobody was watching you. But so I was, it was controlled drinking, which is terrible for an alcoholic and addict. Yeah. We tell people, I mean, I've, I've told sponsees before, like try a little controlled drinking, knowing that it's not going to go well. But I feel like those are the steps we have to take in order for us to recognize that we have this unmanageability about it. We feel like we have to try to manage it. And then we realize after trying everything to manage it, we realize I can't manage anything, you know? Exactly. And it's, you're right. God sort of plopped me in this community 
where everybody was in a or, or a twelve step program. And um, for me, I didn't think I was an alcoholic, but out of all the A's, I'm like, well, I mean, that one applies. Right. Okay. So you end up at this school. At what point does your life, I, I try to tell people this all the time, like it doesn't take long for the miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous to start working. Like it just doesn't take a long time, you know, for any 12 step program when you commit to your life that you want to change the miracles start to happen like how quickly after you stopped drinking and really started to do the work did you start to see some of those miracles happen in your life so that's a really good question so i basically started going to aa meetings because um like i wanted to get off campus but i also i thought it would make me look good in the job but it immediately made me feel better I mean, it just did. Like, there's like medicine. Meetings are our medicine. Yeah, I say the same thing, too. And I was getting... I was about to get fired for the fourth time. It's very normal to get fired several times there. But I was getting fired for the fourth time, and I decided to go in earnest. So I started, you know, going to the program, going to meetings, and then they fired me anyway. And so... And it's interesting, because it's so tricky. My bottom, it wasn't like I had this big rager, okay. you know, my real alcohol bottom was a year before that I had done controlled drinking but I was bottom, I had a terrible case of soul sickness and I was like an emotional disaster I mean I was you know just uh, like a dry drunk if you will so in er then I went to an a my my very my a, a meeting at a new time meeting I had just gotten fired and it was at that it was my bottom I was homeless I was no longer living at that school I was fired, and then I showed up at this new time meeting. So 20 years ago, in that part of the country, in Western Mass, there was not... I mean, my heart is so warm. There's so many young people now Yes, here. agreed that there's meetings everywhere, like meetings you can go to and be like, wow, I relate to you people. Right. Like, you're like me. 20 years ago in Western Mass, everybody yeah. was old and white. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no offense. And <laughs> it's true, though. There are only, like two or three young people and I beelined it Oh, so I heard people say get a sponsor and people were talking about turning it over and I didn't know what they were talking about but you know they're talking in riddles and yeah. so I just saw this one gal who was probably around my age was like one year older brown hair and I beelined it to her and I didn't know what sponsor meant but I was like excuse me will you be my sponsor and she's like looked at me sort of like that and she was like call me and I said um, I'm afraid but I'm afraid you guys are brainwashing me. And she said, your brain needs washing. <laughs> I always tell that story when I share because I had a, you know, my brain was killing me. And I really did need to get my brain washed. It is interesting that you, that you say that because there are people, um, even in my life, um, or who have this perception of what the 12-step program is, and they're like, ah, oh, it's a cult, and it's those things. I'm like, yeah, but... I mean, as long as we're focused on good, I, I'll be right. a member of a cult. Like, as long as it's all spiritual and it's great, like, what's wrong with that? You know, like, what's wrong? And I love that your brain needed washing because our brains do. Like, we need to cleanse ourselves and really allow ourselves to forgive ourselves from the past, too. Right. But also learn a new way of thinking, you know? Well, and you asked before about, you know, how quickly did I feel better? I think one of the things I realized, I mean, it was so interesting when my therapist at the year before said you'll get a lot of support because I'm from an Asian family mm -hmm. like I had financial support and a lot of support but I wouldn't necessarily say 
you know, honey, how are you feeling today? You know what I mean? Like, so I didn't get that kind of support. It was sort of like we're feeding you, we're clothing you, we're sending you to, you know, college. And so when I met this woman and went to these meetings, I felt so much support. And it was so, it, I think when we're addicts and alcoholics, we do it our way or self will run riot. So I immediately started feeling better because I started doing it someone else's way mm. and taking suggestions. And literally I would like, I, I, in some ways I really admire, you know, the, my newcomer self because I had this indelible faith. I just, I just believe what old timers said. They said, if you don't want to go to a meeting, that's okay. Go to a meeting. If you're having financial problems, go to a meeting. If you're having romantic problems, go to a meeting. And so I was homeless. I didn't have a job and I just believed what they said. They said, turn it over. It'll work out. And I was like, okay. And I just, they're like, keep coming to meetings. So you can't do this now, but 20 years ago, I raised my hand in a meeting and mm. I was like, I'm homeless. I'm on the cusp of homelessness. That's what I said, because I was about to, you know, get leave my job or they were kicking me out. And I said, um, but I'm going to still, you know, it's going to work out. And this woman, Gail, came up to me and she's like, I have a bed and breakfast. Why don't you come stay with me? Now, you can't do that today, <laughs> but right. I was like, I trusted her. She was really kind. And I stayed in the Edith Wharton room and the Herman Melville room. And I made frittatas with her staff. And I lived there for two weeks. And then she said, you got to go. And I just believed what the old timers told me. They're like, it's going to work out. Have faith in God. And literally my car like drove me to this bed and breakfast. And I asked for a job. And he said, you know, I don't have anything. So my car led me to another bed and breakfast. And this woman, and I said, I need a place to live. And she said, actually, we had college kids this summer in the barn. They just left. Why don't you talk to the innkeepers? I talked to these innkeepers who were New Jersey transplants. And they were like, fine, you can work at the inn as like a housekeeper and live in the barn. And I did that for like a few months. How was that? <laughs> How was that? So Was it like... Humbling? Was it exciting? Yes. I mean, I wouldn't say making hospital corners and scrubbing toilets is exciting, but it was very humbling and such a great relief from being screamed at by many addicts. Like, I was basically like a door mom for these acting out, you know, kids. kids. Yeah. And they're like stealing my car keys. I'm chasing them through the woods. So, like, a toilet's not going to talk back to me. So, I was actually not bad. <laughs> but I had never, you know, coming from an Asian family, like, you don't. We didn't do, you know, that kind of. No, that's why they push so much school, right? And academics. So and it would be, it would have been so easy for me to call them and like go back to Long Island, but I wanted to make my own money and I wanted to live there and I just fell in love with the Berkshires, and so they somehow figured out where I was. And when I was at the inn, the innkeepers are like, "Your parents are here." I was like, "What?" So they were so heartbroken. I ended. <laughs> They brought me like kimbap, this, you know, this Korean food. And we went to show them to the barn and they looked around and they were like, what did we do wrong? Like we spent a hundred thousand dollars on your college education. You're bringing shame to the family. I'm like, I'm not like a SEX worker. I'm just, you know, I don't want to be supported by you. Like I want to make my own money and I want to, and, and the job was great because I got to go to a noontime meeting and a nighttime meeting, but they were very, very upset that I was working at this job. It's so interesting that it, it, parents do this. And my parents, um, I, I don't have a relationship with my mom. Uh, and it's sad, but, you know, 
they turn it on themselves. And they, they yes. it's like, no, I need you just to, to like, um, give me a hug and just tell me that you love me and just emotionally support me. Right. This is not about you right now. And like, but our parents, for some reason, they immediately look at it as shame on them. Like, well, I must have done something wrong. Correct. And it's like, no, really, I just need your support right now. Like, this isn't about you. Like, just support me. Exactly. So... They, um, you know, were very upset about it. Yeah, we bad. don't, we don't talk about it. And, but I mean, yeah, I was, I mean, I was working and I was going to meetings. It's so good for your sobriety at that period yeah, of your life. Yeah, I was writing. I was running by llama farms. I just Building loved. a foundation. Exactly. And then the innkeeper sat me down. They're like, there's no heat for the winter. You got to go. And then I graduated from not working at the inn and then I babysat for their kids and I started this babysitting business. And so I was babysitting. I worked at this, um, it's, it's called Gould Farm. It was like this working farm. And I ran the child care center there. And then I answered another like Berkshire Eagle, you know, this like little um, the penny saver type uh, newspaper. And I lived with this woman who happened to be sober for a few months. And I actually think about it. I had the best life. I was getting Hauschka facials. I was getting like cranial sacral massages, going to meetings, like babysitting. And then, you know, it's like gig economy is like very what people do are doing nowadays. But I did that 20 years ago. Like, and it was so economical to, to live there, mm. but I was just weaving together these odd jobs and making it work. And I actually, I mean, I don't, I haven't gotten a facial or massage in a really long time now, <laughs> but then it was just a really great quality of life and just really focusing on my sobriety and self-care. Exactly. And then, and then I answered another little ad and I ended up living for four years in Mill River in this like 100 year old white farmhouse with like wide, white, like uh, whitewashed, um, wooden floors and like funky ceilings. It was a top floor and it was like the coolest little crib. I loved it. I could hear the river. I had a cat. So this is funny. So I would go, I would show up to meetings and like I said, I would just turn it over to whatever the older broads and AAs said. And yeah. I would say in a, in a women's meeting, I'm so lonely because there's not a lot of single people. Mm you know, in the Berkshires, it's like retired New Yorkers or people with young families. And so in a women's meeting, I felt safe to say I'm lonely. And they would, they would say, get a cat. So I got the sober cat. <laughs> so Willa and I lived very happily in this, uh, in the, my apartment. And then I moved to another apartment on Stockbridge, which was an old renovated church. I've lived in grave places, but, uh, and I lived there very happily for a few years. Wow. Okay. So like, what is your life like today now that you've got 20 years in recovery. So I, so what I do now is what, they, so they say what works in the beginning continues to work. So I go to tons of meetings. I also have a lot of time right now, but I go to tons of meetings. I have a home group. I have commitments. I have sponsees. I have a sponsor. Um, but I left the Berkshires because I was working at this job that I wouldn't get promoted because I, w I wasn't licensed. Mm -hmm. I didn't have my master's. So I decided to go, uh, the next right thing was to go to grad school. I also didn't want to work anymore. So when I called my Asian parents and was like, I want to go to grad school, they're like, okay. <laughs> so I went to grad school in Northampton, which is very close to it's where, where I, at. Uh, and very close to the Berkshires. And then I landed in, in Los Angeles through an internship. 
And so I, that's why I was a bi-coastal for two years, because an internship in Santa Monica and in Hollywood. And then 2009, I moved to L.A. permanently. So, so I moved here for a job okay. in my field of choice. And how, what about relationships? Like, <laughs> I mean, where's that? You know, like, I'm single and I've struggled with relationships <laughs> and I'm like going on a decade of sobriety. <laughs> um, so it gets cold in the winter. So I've had two in, in the Berkshires. So I had two back to back year and a half relationships. Mm-hmm. One guy was not sober. One guy was sober. Um, And then when I moved here, I had, you know, dating here and there. And then I did have one one year relationship like a few years ago. And that didn't we ended because he also he drank, but he Mm. also um, we wanted different things. But I kind of view things as, you know, my sponsor taught me people serve a purpose in your life for the time they're there. So I never really regret relationships. You know, I think everything, you know, we, we upgrade. Absolutely. And everything, uh, we just, I just have real, have had really good experiences. I'm, you know, they say in, in the literature somewhere about twisted relationships. I'm too not great at, I give great dating advice. Like my friends think I should I be like. I say the same thing too. My friends come to me for like dating advice. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, just warning you. I have a terrible <laughs> record at dating. But they're like, yeah, but Brandon, you're so practical. Like it just makes sense when we come to you. Like and I have I'm a like, girlfriend of mine. She's like, you should be a couples therapist. <laughs> I'm a therapist. So, um, but it's funny because I, so I'm, so I'm actually dating a lot now, but it's, you know, I practice work. the principles, like I'm light and polite and, you know. So how is recovery, fun. as we begin to wrap up here, um, the question I really want to ask, I have so many people in my life who are like, Kate, Brandon, all the people in my life have ever, now in my life have really only ever known me sober. So they don't mm. even know the old Brandon. Right. So they only experience like very sober Brandon. Yeah. And they're always like, God, you are like the most in control person. And like in our lives, like, are you ever going to drink again? Like, da, 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 da. And I'm like, yeah, no, I just, I don't have an <laughs> urge to drink. Right. Like, the urge to drink is totally gone. Right. Um, but, you know, sobriety is a good part of my life and I continue to want it to be part of my life. Um, and because I think it's a beautiful thing in my life. And, you know, I tell people my passion is news. Like, I love telling people stories. Yeah. I love that. Um, but my purpose in life is to share a message of hope because I know how desperate I was yeah. and how sad I was that I will never I will never drink again and I will never drunk, drug again because I, I really want people to know this is what I look like. This is what I used to feel like. But look at the life I built for me today. Right. And you can have that. Right. So I was, I love the phrase AA is hope for the hopeless because I had no hope when I came in here. I also think that it's a lot for, for me, my opinion is it's, I didn't do it. God did. I mean, I rode the boat and I helped him along the way, but it's, I really feel like it's grace and that it's God working through my life. I also think it's important, um, 
to talk about bottoms in sobriety. So at 17 and a half years of sobriety, I was still going to a couple meetings a week, but I had made my work my higher power. Mm. And I was at this job for eight years, which was like seven years too long. Um, and I loved, I was so passionate about the actual work, but it was very bureaucratic and I wasn't practicing the principle of step one. I sort of cut corners and I was resentful. You know, they say resentment is a number one offender. And I made a mistake at work. I freaked out. I certainly, you know, it was my, one of the things that AA has taught me too in recovery is taking what's your part, like taking your responsibility. Taking full accountability. Yes. So when I called my sponsor, she's like, you did something wrong and you got caught. But I had grown insane. I wanted to drive my car off the 10 freeway. And I think it's important to share that because I was 17 and a half years sober and my I had grown insane. And so God talks through people. I didn't call my sponsor, but I called a friend who was an appointment attorney. She was like, you need to go to the doctor. So I went to the doctor. I told him what was going on. And he was like, you are disabled. And he literally like plucked me out of work. And I figure it out as not one of the slogans. And I was trying to figure out so desperately how to get out of this job. And I remember like a few months before I would call my parents and I would say, you know, daddy, my supervisor's being mean to me. I have to quit. And she, he's like, of course you have to quit if she's being mean to you. We'll support you. And my mom's like, no, no. <laughs> and it was very sweet. And I'm so glad because God, there is a divine plan. Like yes. if I quit, I wouldn't get anything. Like I ended up getting disability and health insurance. And, you know, this man, my doctor, like literally like, like, you know, really helped to save me. And then my, the course of, and I ended up getting fired and, you know, sort of the course of my life changed. But then my, I had a sponsee that passed away like several months later. And then my dad suddenly passed, um, about 20 months ago. And the thing that is important to talk about is like, I didn't want to drink, but life is in session. You know, these are real, you know, I had a difficult two years and I just haven't really, I'm not really working and I'm, but you know, I'm speaking a lot. I'm always say yes to AA requests. Uh, yeah, speaking. Yes. And, um, I go to tons of meetings. I help newcomers. I'm a sober auntie. And I think, you know, acceptance is the answer. Like I have a lot of judgment. I'm 47 and a half. Like, where's my Range Rover? Where's my half Asian baby? You know, I should have some kind of like be some like kind of mogul or something or working at least. That's our ego. And it's like, you know what? God gives me what I need. I have a beautiful home. I, uh, I'm of service. I go to New York every other month to support my, my 83 year old mom. And, um, and you know, I have to do the footwork, but I have to trust that God has a plan for me. And right now I'm, you know, it's real. I feel very compelled to go to New York often and, help my mom and, you know, and, and like I said, I didn't want when these things have happened, especially, you know, with my dad passing so suddenly, you know, I never wanted a drink and I was so proud that he had seen me sober at that time for, you know, 18 years about, and, um, you know, I did his eulogy and I've come to accept that, you know, this is the way that he would want wanted to go, you know, in his favorite airline, in a suit, cash in his pocket, yeah. you know, close to heaven. And, and, um, and AA can stand for attitude adjustment, you know, instead of, I, I, I'm not happy about that. He died by, you know, died alone, but someone recently pointed out, you know, he wasn't alone, you know, mm-hmm. God was with him. 
and that I'm, I, my attitude is adjusted by thinking, you know, I'm so grateful to have had such a great Asian dad. You know, he wasn't like, sweetie, I love you to the moon and back, but he was like, you know, shaved my pencils with his scalpel when I was young and took me, you know, to when I wanted to go to grad school in the city. He took me to East Harlem, to City College. Like, he just showed me. And I, I'm just so grateful. I mean, that's the biggest takeaway from being in the program is because of my, my, it's a disease of perception. So I really have, you know, I've hit the jackpot, really. Yeah, and I think that that's the beautiful lesson to end on is that we have the ability to, when things get tough and when life happens, that we have the ability, sober and in recovery, to step back and see the gratefulness in something and see the positive in it. And that there's solution and that to get out of myself, yep. help someone else. Absolutely. I love when sponsees or sober nieces call me because then I don't need to, you know, deal yeah. with the mishigosh in my head. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Oh my God, it. thank you. Rock. And this is what, you know what, as we end right now, I'm like this is what's so cool about being in recovery is we get to meet really cool people all the time. We get to show up, we get to meet really cool people and we get to hear their life experiences. And that's what this is all about. So thank you very much. Thank you. And you got to meet Fernando, my fiddly fig. I saw the fig and I was like, that will be in the background. <laughs> They're my favorite plants ever. I've got them all over my house. You do? I do. I love, oh love, God. love them. They're the best. So if you ever want a, a beautiful fiddle leaf, go get one because they're amazing. Oh, my and God. And a good color of pop. All right, y'all. We'll see you back here next week for another edition of Escaping Rock Bottom.